Hello, you're tuned in for Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. It's good to have you join us. I'm writing this to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of truth for society. By you being the household of God, you will be the benchmark for truth goodness and rightness in a culture. During Dr. Corbett's recent study of the Greco-Roman household as it's described in the New Testament of the Bible, we've seen some strong parallels between the role, structure and function of the household within its community and that of the church today. Tonight we look at a community of honour as Dr. Corbett offers the household of God a postscript. What I want to achieve is that we become who God wants us to be. And what I'm going to share, I will tell you straight up, I have been not looking forward to. And it felt like the Holy Spirit had put something together in a much more cohesive, coherent way. So I hope I'm coherent this morning, which means makes a little bit of sense. Because what we have to deal with in looking at the household of God, as we'll see, the subtitle here is A Theology of the Church and early Christian culture, the culture of the early Christian church, is something that is so necessary, hardly ever talked about, and as a result, as a result of us not modelling it well, and I'm not saying that we don't model it well, but the danger of not modelling it well has had a huge impact on culture generally. I mentioned that one of the verses, 1 Timothy 3.15, says, "We." it says, I'm writing this to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of truth for society. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, by you being the household of God, you will be the benchmark for truth, goodness and rightness in a culture. And if you don't, Culture will lose its true north of what is good, what is right, and what is true. Hmm. And I, I tell you, I, am, I get incredibly disturbed when I hear my fellow pastors say, I'm not going to talk about that because that's political. And I don't want to get into politics. And what they are talking about are issues like protecting the lives of the unborn protecting the lives of the vulnerable in nursing homes and the like. And church, these are not political issues. Protecting the rights of women to walk home at night from their workplace to their car without the fear of being raped is not a political issue. So what I want to share with you now, I share reluctantly and I share with a plea to be gracious and I'm not asking you to love me, I'm reminding me that you're commanded to do so. (laughs) The church is depicted in the New Testament as a new family, not an old family. When you think about Israel, Israel was a new nation. It was not to be like any other nation. And when the New Testament describes the church, it actually uses some of that language, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, all that, Peter says, is is the shadow of the church. And we, the church, are called to be not a, just a new nation, but a new kind of family, the household of God. And we've seen over these past few sessions of this series 
that the household of God, the household of God is modelled on the Greco-Roman household and God in his wisdom ordained for the church to be birthed at a time when there was this concept called the household. We don't have it today. It may be, some cultures have, but we don't have it. And the roles within the household, the role that the husband played as the husband, the father and the, 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 the manager or the, the, the master he's referred to is not something that we have any equivalence to in our Australian culture at least. And when we think about the church, some people have this idea that the church is a building, go to church. We don't go to church, we are the church. We don't go to church, we come together as the church. So when people think of church, they think sometimes, I think the most common thing is that's a building somewhere. Some people think of the church as a, an institution, and I, I guess it is, but for goodness sake, that's not all it is. It's something else, but it's not like anything else. The church is comprised, and the people to your left and the people to your right, is comprised of those whom Christ has redeemed. I, I love that word. I just think that is the most precious word because that means most of those who Christ calls into his church were a mess. I mean, there are, as a pastor, you, you're dealing with people who have done things that, that, that has messed up their lives. And sometimes you discover that there's new and ingenious ways to mess up your lives from what people tell you. And it breaks your heart uh, in in dealing with some of the the things that are happening in culture I'm aware that there are entire pockets of our of our valley that are third fourth maybe even fifth generation convicts you think oh convicts that that ceased in the 1850s no there are people who's who are in prison now and their fathers were in prison and their grandfathers were in prison their uncles were in prison they go The recidivism in Tasmania is alarming. Recidivism meaning if you go to prison, chances are about 95 plus percent within two years you'll be back there. We we as a church have got something to say into this space. And one of the things we, we can say is that Christ redeems the desperately lost and the desperately broken and the desperately hurting. He redeems people. And maybe you are that people. Maybe there are some here who've been redeemed. But don't we want to see that? Don't we want to see that? We want to see people who are so desperately broken, so desperately unlike us, come to Christ. He's redeemed those whom he's called into his church and made them into a fictive kin. Now, if you haven't been a part of this service, let me tell you what that word fictive means. It means closer than blood. Kin means family relation fictive means closer than someone's that's closer than anyone in your family tree that's the church's relationship brother to sister so when the new testament uses the word brothers and sisters it's not some cute religious language it's reinforcing this fictive kin thing but here's something that i think we are going to be confronted with as a church we're already confronted with it we, I deal with this continually. It's the thing that's going to hold you back from knowing Christ richly. And I would suggest that probably about 90% of you are in this category. We fear intimacy. I, I don't know how you feel when you see the ads for married at first 
sight. Is that what it's called? Married at first sight. When that comes up on TV, do you throw things at your TV as well? Have you had to buy six new TVs because of the... Every time I watch that, I think how foolish the producers of this thing are. Damaging people's lives like this. Destroying people's lives, possibly. Talking about intimacy as if it's something that happens in one night in a bedroom with a person you didn't know the day before. How absurd, how cruel. We fear intimacy. Why? Because one of the things that I talk about with a couple is I'm preparing them for marriage and we we take at least nine months. The last couple I took 18 months because we paused things for a year because of COVID. The couple that I married yesterday were due to be married this time last year, but COVID came in. But we fear intimacy. We fear it. Why? Because you cannot be intimate with another person unless you are totally or at least partially or at least beginning to be vulnerable to them transparent and vulnerable boy that's a you can see why people would be scared of that if I'm if I'm totally transparent with you if I'm vulnerable with you you might hurt me you might use that against me therefore I'm going to put up a wall and I'm going to let you so near I'm going to smile when I'm breaking on the inside because I don't want you to know how I'm really feeling is that the kind of fictive kin we're supposed to be and don't even think about the answer the answer is no But most of us are going to be too afraid to say, that's what I need. In fact, I know that's what people need. The fact that people sign up for Married at First Sight tells me they're looking for intimacy. They're looking for someone they can be transparent with, someone they can be close to, someone that they will let that other person know them. We fear intimacy. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about a scene out of the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you hear this scene that I'm about to read to you, you're going to go, I don't remember seeing that in any movie. No, they were books before they were movies, just pointing it out. Just This is from The Silver Chair. In nearly all of the episodes or the parts of the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, where he was attempting to describe the Christian message in a way that children could get and theologians could debate over. <laughs> Absolutely profound. And in nearly every one of these episodes, another child, apart from the Pavenzi children, get taken into Narnia. And in this instance, in the silver chair, it's a girl by the name of Jill who gets taken into Narnia. First time. Never been there before. And this young girl, eight, nine years of age, she's parched. She arrives in Narnia and she is now parched dry. Listen to this. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. Because she hears a a bubbling brook of water, a stream, a creek. She goes to it. And between uh, between it, the creek, and her, there is a big lion. And if you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, that lion is who? Aslan. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Uh, Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only one by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realised 
that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to um, do anything to me if I come? Said Jill. I, I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. C.S. Lewis has captured how we are afraid of God and yet want to know him. How we are afraid of getting close to another, but how we long to. By the way, do you want to know what happened to Jill? Read the book. (laughs) The church is not like any other community, and that word community is another beautiful word. The person on your left and the person on your right, the person beside you and in front of you, is your brother or sister. My wife is my sister. You heard this morning that she owns me. And she does. I'm hers. She's the one that I want to get close to. And the only way I can is to be honest and transparent and make myself vulnerable to her. And in the church, there's got to be a measure of that. The church, and I don't often use Greek words, but I want to use a Greek word because there is no English word for this Greek word. The church is an ecclesia, which means called out ones. We don't have a word in English for it. Well, we used to. It used to be the word church. But that's used now in all different kinds of contexts and it's kind of lost its meaning. But it means ecclesia. It means called out. Called out of what? Called out of being common. Called out of being average, called out of the world, called out of being like everyone else, called out to be different. Peter, I mentioned before, he put it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, called out of darkness, called into his light. That's the church, that's the called out ones. We are called out to live as a community of believers who adhere to the Romans 12 imperatives. Those imperatives are found, and I'll refer to at least one of them directly in a moment, but those Romans 12 imperatives start at Romans chapter 12, verse 9, go down to verse 21, and there's 27 of these imperatives. What's an imperative? It's imperative that you do it. You cannot claim to be a Christian and refuse to do those things 
because these things are imperative that you do them. That's what an imperative is. They start off, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And so on. And if you ponder those 27 imperatives, you'll realise this is the biblical constitution for the church. We have all kinds of rules and things and churches only ever need written legal lawyer written constitutions when there's a problem. This is to prevent problems. And if you read this, you'll see this is what God expects of me to be a part of the church. And when you read it and ponder it, you'll realise that is the scariest thing I've ever read in my life. This is calling me to be in a community where I will listen to someone and I will join in and celebrate with them when things are going really well but they may not be going well with me how easy is that to do i will expect people to rejoice with me when things are going well even when they may not be going well for them how easy is that for me to expect that these are the things that constitute what the household of god is to look like we are also constituted the bible says about the household of god we are constituted with gifted leadership People who have the gift of leadership, not because they're the biggest donors, not because they run a business that might be successful, but because God has gifted them with leadership and that gift is to be used in the church. They contribute their gifts so that the church, the whole church, you and I, grow. So that we are nurtured. So that we experience care. And so that we are protected. There are some of you here who resist the intimacy of what the church is about. When we have tried to care for you, you have shut us out. Don't do that. There are some of you who are too proud to ask for help. Don't do that. Let us help you. The Bible says in that Romans 12 passage, let me point out two verses. I just read them, but let me read it to you again. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, the one who leads with zeal in proportion to our faith. By the way, that word faith is not, oh, I really believe a lot today. That word faith is the Christian faith, the body of truth that makes Christianity true. Prophesy according to our faith. Where is our faith articulated? I hope that you've got one of these. It's called a Bible. That's where our faith is articulated. In other words, if you come out with a prophecy and it's off the charts, kooky, nutty, weird and stupid, don't do it. That's what it means. Not whether you believe in it, but according to the faith, the standard of what Christian truth is. So the church is called to be, here's another Greek word. Again, we don't have an English word for this, so I'm going to teach you two Greek words today. The first one was ecclesia, the second one is Koinonia. Koinonia. Koinonia is the word that is translated in all of our English Bibles as the word fellowship. And fellowship sounds like two guys on a couch eating chips while they watch Geelong win by one point. That's not fellowship. That's just, what'd you call it, Mark? A great time, was it? Koinonia is that commonality 
that causes the time that we spend together to result in each of us coming closer to Christ, coming closer to the line. Coming closer to the line to get that living water. Coming closer to know Christ. There are some people participating in this service right now and I'm, I'm looking at you. You're at, you're at home, wherever you are. And you haven't come back yet because you're afraid of koinonia. Come home. There are some people who don't come every Sunday because they're afraid of koinonia. They're afraid of the lion. Come to the water. Come to the water. Because it's in koinonia that each member experiences a new identity. A new identity. You know, there, this is my prayer, part of my prayer. That some of the people that you think God could never save, some of the people you might see on TV that are a part of the Tasmanian community, some of the people that you see in your community and you think, oh my goodness, there are some people God could save, but he could never save them. Man, they are so far gone. It's my hope that God messes with you by saving them and bringing them into this church. People that may have wronged you. Won't that be exciting? You're all thinking, yeah, I hope God does do that to someone. But what if he does it to you? I told you you wouldn't like it. New identity, it's where you get it in Koinonia. And that's what it means. Someone comes in and they were a rogue. And they come in and they get saved. They give their life to Christ. Their identity as a failure, their identity as someone who's always generationally got in trouble with the law can be broken like that and they get a new identity. A new identity. It's where they'll find acceptance. And we say it, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, no matter who knows whether you've done it, you can find that God will accept you and forgive you. And that's the next word, forgiveness, in the koinonia. And not only that, care. And we need to really think through what it means to care for one another. Because there are some people that have a very, very petty understanding of what care means. They think care means validating every choice and decision they make. You know, our care might mean that we don't. Because we care. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another. So I don't think the Bible presents us with a rosy, magical, whimsical, pixie land view of church. If it's telling us that there might be times when we have to bear with one another. And how do we do that today? We usually leave a church and go and find another one. But that's not bearing with one another. We try and sort it out. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We want to be the household of God where people can experience acceptance and forgiveness. Koinonia is a community of honour. In Australian culture, we struggle to honour others. We struggle to do it. We do it, but we struggle to do it. To be a church of honour means that we, we will do things like clap someone who's done something well. I felt like clapping our worship team this morning. 
Oh, that was excellent. I thought the three girls who sang this morning, uh, April, Sophie and Charlotte, were in almost perfect harmony. Well, I don't know how it sounded from where you were, but from where I was, it was like, I reckon that's one step away from heaven. It sounded awesome. So if you see them after the service, which I'm sure you will now, let them know. It was awesome. Last week, I... I almost did the same for Zali because I think Zali has the voice of an angel. Zali, you do. It's awesome. It's brilliant. It's a place of honour where we honour people. We honour our parliamentary leaders, as you know. Just to let you know, Michael Ferguson, Minister for Finance, who's part of our church family, apologised to me that he couldn't be here today because his boss called an election on Friday and they all had to meet down for that. But he apologised and I appreciated that. He's not, he's not a Christian politician. He's a Christian who is a politician. Do you see the difference? Koinonia is a place of, of, of honour and and, and it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Huh. Very un-Australian. But let's see what God will do with us when we do. The koinonia is a community that encourages faithfulness to Christ that seeks to avoid bringing shame to Christ. How, how often do we see of a of a fallen Christian leader, someone who's been doing the wrong thing, covering it up. And then it comes out. And it's like, I, 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 I just, I, I'm going to be transparent with you. About three, four, five weeks ago, it felt to me like it was, oh, not another one. As it came out that I... Uh, I'm reluctant to name names, but you will probably know some of the names. And it was just one after another that had been living a sexually immoral life while telling people not to commit sexual immorality. It brings shame to the name of Christ when people live like that. One of the things that I think we need to be aware of is how does that work in a local church? What's it supposed to look like when one of us representing Christ? And here I'll just tell you straight up, every leader, every department leader, every ministry leader in our church, if they are deliberately, deceptively doing the wrong thing, especially the wrong thing that hurts people in secret, that is, and I'm going to quote the Prime Minister, disgraceful. Because this week, as I was wondering, do we live in a shame culture? Do we? And then, was it Monday morning or Tuesday morning, I heard the Prime Minister. No, it was Tuesday morning, after the Four Corners story. Tuesday morning, I heard the Prime Minister live. I, I had TV in my office. I, I, I put it on to hear the Prime Minister go live. When he said, within the first 60 seconds of his media conference, this is disgraceful behaviour. 
He used the word disgraceful, I think, from my reckoning, three times in the first 60 to 90 seconds. Then he used the word shameful another two or three times in the first couple of minutes. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe we do live in a shame culture because that's probably how you do it. And how do we do it in the church? The Bible says this, if one suffers, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. All rejoice together. So God, I'm going to bring this to a close and you'll see why I've been hesitant and why I've sort of had to preface what we've been looking at with this. God has designed for his people to be shaped by shame. And when I read the New Testament, I read the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He names two Christian leaders who walked away from Christ, Hymenius and Alexander. They walked away and he shames them, publicly shames them. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, about verse 7 or so I think it is, where he says that if an elder does the wrong thing they should be publicly brought before the church and shamed I'll tell you in my 40 plus years as a Christian and my 30 plus years as a pastor I've never seen that that's all we have time for tonight for a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion please go to our website findingtruthmatters.org and select household of God postscript from our online store As we've heard tonight, we are called to be a community that bears with one another, forgives one another, and one that encourages faithfulness to Christ, seeking to avoid bringing shame to Christ. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.